This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, my friend. How are you? I hope you are well. Welcome to Catch Up with Louise Makshari. If you're here for the first time, an extra special big welcome to you. If you're returning, doubly extra special big welcome to you because um, I so appreciate you coming back to listen to me. This was a pretty exciting week, I have to say. It was very nice seeing everyone Spotify unwrapped and lots of you tagged me in posts showing that this podcast is one of your your favorites from the year and I truly can't overemphasize how much that means to me. I mean, literally, like this is my job and I couldn't have it be my job. I mean, I do other bits as well, but like I couldn't have this be my job without you. So I just am so grateful. And it was also an exciting week because I got uh, to hear the catch up phone like binging with voice notes and contributions, um, which was really exciting. If you didn't listen to the last episode, the podcast has a phone now. So I am welcoming feedback, stories. If there's anything you'd like to share, something you think I should be talking about, or if you have an opinion on something that we're talking about, I would love to hear that. If you disagree, with something that we say if you think a conclusion we come to in the celeb stories or whatever is wrong or if you have feedback maybe on someone I interview I'd love to hear back from you on that the number is 089 209-6423 that's 089-209-6423 send me a little voice note um, I'm gonna play a few highlights from this week at the end of the show so that you can hear and um, I just think it's such a nice way to for us to hear each other and for you to hear each other's voices and and help us kind of learn a little bit about this community that we have going here and um, that I am so proud of um, otherwise I just I've been flat out working because I'm headed to other voices this weekend um, and I'm heading down well today if you're listening on Friday I headed down yesterday so my work week is cut relatively short although I'm doing a bit of work down at other voices um so I had to try and pack the work in so there's nothing really exciting going on and um, if you're headed to other voices lucky you it is truly the highlight of my year I absolutely love it can't wait to get to Dingle can't wait to drink my coffee and bean and Dingle have my chowder and banners got all my little traditions get my fish and chips from um the real chipper I'm just very very excited and if you're around come and see me discuss the cultural highlights of the year with Jim Carroll at Banter on Sunday at four in Foxy John's otherwise I hope to see you bopping around the place don't be shy don't be a stranger please do say hi um 
if you spot me in the wild. Um, I mean, ideally before like 2 a.m., but like, you know, if it happens at 2 a.m., that's okay too. We've got loads of great stuff coming up this week. Later on, I'm going to be talking to the directors of a film that was released this week to coincide with World AIDS Day. I absolutely loved this conversation and I think you will too. Um, Then later, later on, um, we will talk celebs with Cassie. What the hell is going on with Balenciaga? Like what? What? Um, And um, there's lots more coming as well. So stick around. But for now, let's get a little news digest with the one and only Aoife Moore, political correspondent with the Sunday Times Ireland. Well, please excuse my husk. I have the sore throat of doom, but I am so happy to be speaking to Aoife Moore, political correspondent at the Sunday Times Ireland. And, you know, I don't know like if I leaned on the side of positive or if it's just what the week gave us, but I'm happy to report that our stories this week are largely positive. They are. It was the first thing I noticed when I yeah. looked at them. I was like, oh, this must be a good mood. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm mostly feeling sorry for myself with this sore throat, but I will I will persevere and survive. So let's get going and let's talk about a potential four-day week work week, excuse me, in Ireland. Yeah, I'm not ultimately very surprised about this, but a new report um, of a pilot program with a number of Irish companies who took on a four-day week said that employers as well as staff can benefit significantly from adopting a four-day work week. So the firms that did it included like tech services, telecoms and recruitment companies. And there was about 200 employees um, involved in it and they did it for six months. Mm. So when they finished it, they said that the benefits included reduced stress, improved family time and significantly better sleep. Mm. which I thought was interesting because nothing else has changed only you just don't work five days you work four days instead um no surprise that women who worked at these companies said that they find it better um and it changed their working arrangements um for the better when it came to looking after kids Mm. um it's almost like men don't have kids it's almost interesting that it only affected women (laughs) Um, so it's part of like a wider study. So they've done it in America and New Zealand and Australia mm. and that everybody is kind of coming back with the same answers. Um, they said it's a lot to do with work-life balance and for years that we've had a mismatch when it comes to how much time you spend at work compared to how much time you spend with your family mm. and that all the companies involved said that they had a positive experience, which I thought was quite something so it doesn't reduce well it makes sense because if your staff are happier and less stressed they're going to work better they're all going to work better together exactly um and and it doesn't a lot of people i saw asking about this it doesn't reduce the pay and it's not that you have to shove five days work worth of work into four days yeah you work the same amount yeah um in terms of like well, working but it's just four days rather than five well it's just interesting because like the whole reason that we have a 40 hour work week is because in the 1920s Henry Ford implemented an eight hour work day with three shifts so that he could run his car factories around the clock like literally <laughs> that's where yeah, it started uh, and then that became kind of nationwide during the Great Depression and the entire world ended up adopting it so like yeah it doesn't make sense that we would be basing our work life around the industrial ev- revolution like that's you know we don't we don't gotta do that so it would be great I'm man I hope they introduce that I mean having said that as a self-employed person you know won't impact me greatly I suppose it would impact me yeah they said that there's some sectors some sectors that just wouldn't work I think journalism 
because there isn't enough staff in journalism as it is, I highly doubt that papers would be able to bring it in, but mm. I would be a big fan of it for everyone else. Me so too. It's good news. Me too. Okay, now let's talk about this situation, which I have to say I was really glad to see happen. Sinead McSweeney um, took on Twitter, essentially, um, and she has been restored to her position. Yeah, leave it to an Irish woman. So as we know, um, world-renowned clown shoe Elon Musk mm-hmm. took over Twitter a while ago and has been acting the absolute maggot since he's taken it over. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, we've heard about massive layoffs in Twitter in America um, in which staff were told if they didn't want to work for Twitter hard hardcore they had to leave. This is not something you can do in Ireland. We have very strict and very strong employment laws and for good reason. So it hasn't been as easy to do that to people in Ireland. So Sinead McSweeney, um, for anyone who worked in tech or in media, would have known Sinead's name before this. Mm. But she was an Irish-based senior executive in Twitter. She's been there for a wee while. So she uh, secured a temporary high court order injunction preventing Twitter and Elon Musk from terminating her employment. Mm-hmm. A few weeks ago, Musk sent out a very demented email um, and she didn't respond to it. Um, she's not used to Twitter acting this way, the employers acting this way, and she didn't really get it. So Elon Musk sent this email out and she just didn't reply. She said when she didn't reply, she felt that she had been terminated from the company, even though she never resigned. She was locked out of the Twitter's IT system and she was unable to access her office in Dublin, which she said was really embarrassing. Um, So they said that they would restore everything, restore her employment and restore her access to the Twitter HQ in George's Key. And Twitter said, well, their solicitor said that they would allow the firm's human resources section to enter negotiations with uh, Shane McSweeney um, to resolve the dispute. I think this was always bound to happen and it was always bound to happen in Ireland because you cannot treat staff mm. in Ireland the way you, he has been treating staff in America. Mm. Um, she said... Well, her solicitor said that she remained concerned about her employment Mm. and she said that he had been, Musk had been acting in an erratic manner since he took over the company and she didn't know whether the undertakings would be fully complied with. Well, this is the thing Um, is that like, you know, like Sinead McSweeney, I've met her. She's a powerful woman. Like she's, I, I really, really liked her when I met her and she was the company's or is the company's global vice president for public policy. Like she has a very senior position, but like it's hard to imagine Mm. that it's going to be tenable long term if Elon Musk remains where he is because um, presumably they will continue to be at odds but like you know still it's important that she made this statement which is you can't just send someone an email and say you know if you're up for intense Twitter then stay but like if not you're gone and lock people out of offices without any kind of conversation or negotiation or whatever Um, so I'm I love her for standing up to him she's dead right even if long term it's not going to work yeah, even in this, I would say she's been scouring job ads since yeah. this happened. I wouldn't say she'd but, have to scour too um, high, yeah, to be honest. First, I'd say she's got job offers no, left, right and centre. Yeah, this is the first of its kind with Elon Musk and Twitter, and I don't think it'll be the last one. I think he has treated people a certain way 
for a long time because mm. his companies have been based in America yeah. and he's just not going to get away with it in Ireland because our legislation yeah. won't allow for it. Absolutely. Okay, let's move on to America where um, some legislation has been passed. In It seems to me in order to prevent something like what has happened with abortion there happening with same-sex marriage. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. That's the best way to say it. So the US Senate has passed a landmark bill which would protect same-sex marriage. So there had been massive concerns after the repealing of Roe versus Wade by the very uh, conservative Supreme Court that the same thing was going to happen with same-sex marriage and they have moved now to protect that. The real positive, I think, of this is that it was a bipartisan move so that Republicans and Democrats both voted together mm. um, on the Respect for Marriage Act and it basically says that the way Roe versus Wade repealing worked is it threw it back to the states and mm. said the states get to choose whether they want to implement this law. Mm. This new law makes it federal mm. so that even if the states repeal it, it doesn't matter because the federal Lord, the courts override that. Yeah, and this so, is what people like um, Elizabeth Warren um, and AOC and people like that were saying after Roe v. Wade was overturned. They were like, you know, this could have been prevented and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, therefore you have a responsibility to do more to make sure that, you know, it won't be, it, it, you know, there won't be similar action around issues like same-sex marriage. Um, I'd say American people who are in same-sex marriages or who hope to be are breathing a sigh of relief. Yeah, because we need to remember that same-sex marriage became legal in America under Barack Obama in 2015. Mm. Um, so the fact that it could be overturned, that your relationship, that your marriage could be null and void is really scary. Um, so 12 Republicans joined the Democrats to pass the legislation. Um, and it was very much the rest of the Republicans said, we don't need this, this is pointless mm. because we're never going to come for same-sex marriage. But they but said I don't that think about believes yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, they said that about um abortion. Okay, let's another piece of good news. This is obviously I mean, in a way it's good news for my family, but it's not really. Um there is a new drug for Alzheimer's. And I wouldn't normally be talking about a story about a new drug because I feel like we hear these all the time. But this is particularly significant. Sorry, I just have to pull it up on my because they are okay. Yeah, don't worry. Uh, pull makes it go away hold on it never goes back to the same thing um yeah so ex- i really enjoyed this line experts have hailed the beginning of the end in the search for effective alzheimer's treatment because they have discovered or made or i don't know how this works but a new drug which reduced memory decline among patients with the early stages of the disease mm. so l- i'm going to say this wrong lecanemib lecanemib <laughs> Yeah, that's better. I mean, neither of which us know, is, really. <laughs> which is designed to target um, and clear amyloid, which is a protein that builds up in the brain of people who have Alzheimer's. And that mm. this has been found to slow decline in patients' memory and thinking. So it um, there was clinical trials um, carried out um, by the Tokyo-based company. And they have said that their early initial results in September from a trial on nearly 2,000 people um, said that after 18 months, the drug slowed the disease by 27%. Yeah, this compared is... Compared with patients not taking it. Major. Like, obviously, I did quite a bit of reading into this when it came out this week because of the fact that my family is being impacted by Alzheimer's right now. And the challenge mm-hmm. with this drug is that it, they they need to get 
in early. So like if you are have progressed already with Alzheimer's disease, it's not going to do anything for you. But if you have started to have that protein buildup and you start taking this drug, it will prevent it from building more. So there's going to be, I think they're, they're going to have to reassess Alzheimer's in terms of diagnosis and stuff and testing. Because yeah. at the moment, Alzheimer's is usually not diagnosed until it would be too late um, for this drug to be effective. But it is great news for our future and for the future of people younger than us. And, you know, I obviously w- would hope that there would come a time where nobody would have to experience Alzheimer's disease for sure. Like, I didn't know anything about Alzheimer's until it came into our family. And mm-hmm. I was at the appointment um, where my mom was diagnosed. They showed us a scan of her brain and you could see the protein buildup. Like it's it's wild. Oh, it's okay. like it's like yeah. white on the scan that's just like covering an entire section of her brain. Um, so that realization that it's very much a physical thing that's happening, you know, yeah. as opposed to like, you know, mental illness or something that isn't a tangible thing it is really interesting. Yeah, that you could actually biologically see yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they said that the biggest thing um, for them was that it proves that Alzheimer's can be treated. Yeah. Because for a long time they just assumed that it they couldn't. That it couldn't. And as you said, this they'll have to relook at how they diagnose Alzheimer's because we know even people um, listening to this will have loved ones that Alzheimer's is one of those things where people not necessarily ignore it at the start. But, you know, can often put it down to like, oh, I'm just being a bit forgetful yeah. or. Well, know, it took us two years up. to get my mom to go to the doctor. Two years. Yeah. And and it was long so before that news. that we were like, ah, it's just it's nothing. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. we'll ha- all have to change our attitudes quite significantly, I think. And then finally, I want to talk about Le Baguette. <laughs> Did you like that? Bonjour. <laughs> oui, um, oui. <laughs> come see, come see. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the humble baguette, which I take on Bridget because there's not humble about the baguette. Francis Staple Bread has made it onto the United Nations Cultural Heritage List. Excellent. It is drawing delight from responses from bakers and carb lovers alike. Um, UNESCO on Wednesday said that they voted to include it because of the artisanal know-how and culture of baguette bread. And it uh, it's now on the cultural heritage list, which includes around 600 traditions from 130 countries. They said it's a French way of life. The baguette is a daily ritual and it's a structure element of the meal. I always feel like if you get a baguette with your dinner, you're a bit like, it's quite fancy to me. Something fancy about having bread with your I dinner. agree. It's stunning. I, I, I'll be honest. I love a baguette. There were two reasons I wanted to talk about this. One was that I so loved the idea. If you read the stories, there's lots of bakers celebrating. <laughs> like I love in this story, Christophe Mousseau, uh, a teacher at the renowned for Ferrandi Culinary School in Paris, announced the news to his baguette making class. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it. We're in the UNESCO list. It's been <laughs> recognized, he said, to cheers from his students. I'm very happy. Um, which I just love the Can't idea. Can't think of anything more <laughs> French to people cheering on a baguette. I know. And the other reason that I wanted to talk about this is because I saw earlier this week a TikTok where a, a little girl was dressed up as a baguette and someone was interviewing her about her life as a baguette. And it's so funny. And I'm going to clip some of it here now for you to enjoy. Where did the first baguette originate? I don't know, I'm part of like the 74th generation of baguettes, so I have no idea, to be honest. Our baguette history books didn't teach us that, so, you know. 
<laughs> what age do you start going to baguette school? Can you tell me a little bit more about baguette school? Um, usually it's like right when you're baked, you, you get put into baguette school and you learn about how to be a delicious baguette there. And do you feel like people should be eating baguettes plain or do you advocate for people to uh, put something on the baguette? Um, as far as that goes, I'd say I'd let anybody eat their baguette the way they would choose because part of the baguette is experience is choosing how you want to eat your baguette. So there you go. I mean, honestly, I mean, we could not have done better this week in terms of stories that won't make you want to jump off the planet. Yeah, no, this has been a real uh, departure for us. And it's always good to end with bread. Well, yeah, um, I mean, I to be add- clear, I don't make the stories. <laughs> like no, The world true. just happens and then we have to comment on it. I've become the podcast equivalent of the people who comment under my stories going do you ever tell any good news as if i go out and create the news exactly um the people who complain about never being any happy news are also the same people who want to bring back hanging i find wow stunning (laughs) (laughs) okay well i'm gonna go i need to give my throat a rest um i don't know what is going on with my body it's failing me miserably Aoife, i look forward to seeing you in dingle over the weekend excited thank you bye This week on December 1st, people around the planet marked World AIDS Day. It's a day to remember those who lost their lives to AIDS and to raise awareness of the epidemic and where we stand with HIV today. Fortunately, we stand in a state of positive progress. These days, people living with HIV who are on effective treatment live long and healthy lives. And those on treatment with an undetectable viral load can't pass on the virus. That's what U equals U means. Unfortunately, that still doesn't mean the stigma of HIV has gone. And this week, the film How to Tell a Secret was released in cinemas nationwide. It explores the reality of disclosing a positive HIV status. And I was delighted to chat to its co-directors, Sean Dunn and Anna Rogers, in my kitchen this week. First of all, I feel like I've been hearing about this film for so long. (laughs) It's obviously been, you know, a long kind of work in progress um, leading up to this now national release, um, which has got to be so exciting for you guys. I know it's based kind of originally on a play that you created, Sean. So maybe tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting. Somebody um, referred to it as an evolution (laughs) of the play, which I think is a really nice way to put it rather than an adaptation because, yeah, we were working on the play from 2016, um, Robbie Lawler and I, and it was about HIV disclosure in Ireland today. And we were pulling from his peer support group that he was kind of doing himself um, all around the city, all around the country. And uh, we premiered the piece in Dublin Theatre Festival in 2017, and then we toured it around Ireland in 2019. Um, and that was an amazing experience, but it's a completely different offer, I suppose, to do a documentary theatre performance mm. with actors representing people's testimonies than it is to kind of put that work um, on screen and lock it in mm. <laughs> for the cinema. So it's been amazing. And I came to see one of our last performances in Project Art Centre. And we kind of just started to have the conversation with each other. Oh, so that's how it began. Yeah, I just went to see a show like my producer, our producer who, who made the film with us, Slata Filipovic. She had two tickets. I was meant to go with her and she was sick. And I, I decided to go on my own on that fateful night. So glad I went because, mm. you know, if I hadn't, it wouldn't have come up. And like earlier, I suppose in 2016, which is really weird that that was the same year, I wanted to do something about HIV, but it was more of a straight up TV documentary yeah. 
uh, thing. And I did some research and I went along to a couple of clinics. I met people mm. um, and talked to them about it. And, uh, you know, it just didn't take off. It just didn't land. And I didn't mm. feel like I'd have the access to people to tell their stories. Yeah. So it, I parked it. When I saw the show, I just thought, wow, this would be such an amazing film. Mm. And, you know, I wasn't quite sure how we do it yet, but I knew I wanted to do something that was collaborative, mm. you know. So I always say, like, you know, it would have been a very different film if I'd gone along and met Sean for a coffee and said, hey, can I have the rights to your right. play? Because neither of us, I think, if we'd made the film alone, would have made the same kind of work that we did make. Yeah. Like the whole, I suppose, unique thing about the film is that it, it's come from two directors working together mm. and like, you know, we divided everything down the middle and made all the decisions together. So, you know, Sean, it wasn't like I directed the documentary bits and Sean directed the drama bits. We mm. both worked on both yeah, and learned loads and did something completely different out of our comfort zone. Yeah, I was really struck because um, my husband worked in documentaries for six years in RT making documentaries. And obviously for the last couple of years, he was working from home. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I learned an awful lot. I've, I've also been part of a documentary, but like I learned a lot yeah. from him about, you know, the the creative side of putting a documentary together and and kind of how to get around situations where you might not have someone who's able or willing to actually tell their story and that's what I think is the the brilliant thing and I said to him straight away I was like after I watched it I was like you have to see this because it's such a creative way of, of approaching it because of course one of the challenges that you have when you're making a documentary about HIV disclosure is that lots of people still don't feel comfortable disclosing it publicly mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's something, I mean, it, it, that challenge was always a part of the project in the sense that at, at the time in 2016, things weren't where they are now, mm. you know. So U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable wasn't common knowledge, which I know some of your listeners might know about it already, but it just basically means if you're on effective treatment, you can't pass on the virus to a sexual partner. And mm. um, that wasn't in the mainstream. Like the, the piece that we made kind of announced that actually before right. there was literature <laughs> in mm. places in spaces in queer spaces even um so there's been a, a huge shift but at the time you know I think what Anna was quite excited about as well when she came to see the piece we were interested in that um quest for like privacy or anonymity or not being able to speak freely there was an opportunity creatively for dual representation which is what I always call it so in the piece for example Robbie self represents Robbie Lawler and just in case anybody doesn't know, Robbie Lawler is an incredible, beautiful young man who is, uh, I suppose, an activist, really, um, yeah, yeah. for representing people who are HIV positive. Yeah, absolutely. And so he self-represents a lot of his own story um, through interview. We meet his family, all that kind of stuff. But we also have Eva Jane Gaffney, who's an actor, holds some of his story, a very specific mm-hmm. sequence. And even in, in that moment, sharing the story brings mm. something because for a moment you're looking at Eva Jane, who is a mm. young woman from Dublin, who you might not expect mm. to have HIV. Mm. <laughs> and you your mind does something different with the story then. You start to see the, the, the situation in yeah. a way more open way. So we were excited about that potential. Yeah, and I loved totally. that um, you made the decision to kind of show some of the conversations that you had, Sean, with the actors who are three brilliant, talented uh, women um, and, and saying, you know, it doesn't matter that you're a woman and that the person whose story this is is maybe a man from Cork. It doesn't matter that you're a woman mm-hmm. from Dublin because there probably is a woman from Dublin who has this experience. Is. Yeah, absolutely. 100% there is. And that, I think, for the performers gave them a charge and made them mm-hmm. kind of feel, oh, God, yeah, it could be a friend of mine. I just don't know. Yeah. It could be me, you know, in a few months, in a year. Who knows yeah. what's going to mm-hmm. come into life, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it was an exciting opportunity and just, like, leaning into that secrecy piece and, and trying to kind of... um. 
I suppose, transform into an act of solidarity as opposed to like, oh, we're behind the curtain kind of thing, yeah. you know, that way. Yeah, it felt really powerful. Yeah, that was the thing that grabbed me when Eva Jane first came out on stage when I saw the play, because, you know, this young woman comes out and says, I want to tell you something. It's about me. I'm from Clondalkin. And she's, you know, representing herself as such. And I thought, oh, oh we're breaking the... The, the kind of drama here and actually mm. she's going to start telling her own story and then I suddenly had to kind of in those seconds before she kind of said I'm playing Robbie Lawler mm. and I realised oh, okay it's not about her yeah. I realised why am I so surprised that a young woman who you know well I was going to say who looks like me but she does not look like me I wish <laughs> <laughs> but you know that could be me or my sister or my yeah. friends why am I so surprised yeah that she could have HIV. And and in that moment, I had to kind of address my own lack of knowledge, I suppose, and experience. And I kind of asked myself, God, do I, do I know any women that have HIV? And I didn't, you yeah. know. And that was something I thought would be really important for us to talk about. Because I think when you're making documentaries, you are looking to tell stories that haven't been told before yeah. or to get people talking about things that we should be talking about, you know. And so getting to, I suppose, play with telling those those stories that are kind of undercover as such, mm. you know, um, but through working with actors was really an exciting thing as a yeah. documentary maker. Yeah, because there is a perception and you address this or it's addressed within the film and um, that, you know, yes, the, you know, rates of HIV are high in Ireland comparatively to, to previous rates, but like it's all people who are bringing in HIV from other countries or it's only in the gay community. But of course, that's not true. No, it's not true. It's not true at all. I mean... It's funny, just like picking up on what you said there about um, about not knowing any women. Like, well, what's been amazing about this process for me in particular is I probably know more women than men that really? have HIV. And I think people would be very surprised to hear that. But like over the years, I've met so many women and um, some who feature in the project, some who don't. So I've it's been a gift for me, like having gone through this process over time to really see the, the broadness in yeah. the community and the diversity. Um. And Absolutely, yeah, I think yeah. that's something that we want to challenge for sure. Yeah, and I think you do because, I mean, something that's pointed out within the film is that, you know, it's very difficult to for women to feel comfortable speaking about this. And, and a lot of the time it comes down to the fact that they're mothers and they have concern yeah. for their families. And I loved Veda is also in the film and Veda pointed out, you know, that's funny because, you know, he said he was so concerned about his mother to hear that now know, mothers who have HIV are concerned thing. about their children. Yeah, like yeah. that's it. You know, when you, when you look at anything to do with sexuality actually you know it's a common theme you know anything we've ever made about lgbt lives it always comes back to your your mother and father and how they have accepted you or not accepted you you know mm. there's always a lot of baggage and hurt and fear around that and you know coming out and telling parents and everything is such a big it still is and it, it, that probably will never go away because yeah. it's it's a theme that comes up again and again and we spoke to the women you know who took part in the film on zoom um I think all of them, all of the women that we spoke to were mothers, actually. Yeah. Um, and they were of different, they spanned a kind of a different uh, range of ages and they were all over the country as well. Mm. And it was during lockdown, so everything was on Zoom. And, you know, you're kind of sitting there waiting to meet them. And we always said to people as well, like, you don't have to turn on your camera if you don't want to. Yeah. We can just chat to you here and mm. you don't have to appear. But they all did turn on their cameras, actually. And we had lovely exchanges um and we stayed in touch I mean some of them want to be more involved than others they want to know what's going on yeah. with the, re the film's release 
um, some of them have come and attended screenings. And we always say, like, you don't have to come if you don't want to. You mm-hmm. can be in the audience. You don't have to come up and say hi to us and identify yourself in that way if you don't feel comfortable, just to make it feel very safe for people. Yeah. But like they, they did come up and actually at our, our screening our premiere at the um, Dublin Film Festival, one of the women who took part in the film came up on stage and wow. embraced us and celebrated with us on stage. And I, I, I never really knew, did the audience kind of, you realise she could have been the sound recordist or she yeah. could have been the they gaffer had no or whoever. Idea. Yeah, you they, wouldn't make that assumption, I don't they maybe, think. They maybe wouldn't have known. Mm. But it was a lovely moment for us because I remember us looking at each other and being like, oh my God, she's coming up. Like yeah. it was, a, you know, I get teary even thinking about it. Yeah, you know? I, that doesn't surprise me that you feel emotional about it because I even I felt, obviously I spend a lot of time thinking about women and <laughs> the way that we live and the way that we interact with society and the way the society interacts with us. So I was really struck by a moment in the film where um two of the the women are talking about uh two women who obviously know each other figuring out that each other is hiv positive and then having someone in their life that knows yeah Yeah. who knows and and it's a lovely moment but it made me just so struck by the fact that there are so many women who are alone and who don't feel like they can say it to anyone and who don't have a community and i just can't even imagine how isolating and difficult that must be. Yeah, one of the women who we spoke to who lives in rural Ireland told us that she hadn't told her close friends. And so nobody really in her life knows. Um, And that was really hard to hear because here was this person who we had just met who was like, you know, telling us this experience. And I'm sure that was kind of cathartic for her Mm. in some ways. But then, you know, to think that she doesn't have like a best friend that she can confide in about this, who who she knows will never judge her or, you know, um, who, who doesn't care, yeah. you know, and that she can kind of share all the ups and downs of that, because I know that person was embarking on telling their child yeah. and, you know, facing into a big moment like that. You want to trash that out with your friend, of don't course, you? Voice yeah. messages on WhatsApp 100%. or, you know, multiple glasses of wine or coffee or whatever. <laughs> yeah. to just kind of like prepare yourself yeah. and having to kind of get ready to do something like that totally alone. I don't know. I mean, it's it's uh, it's quite unimaginable and yeah. it shouldn't be like that. No, it really shouldn't be like that. It it, it It's so frustrating, you know, because you just feel like it, it's so possible for it to be different. And yet it, it feels so hard at the same time. Absolutely. Because I think um, there's another another piece within the film where one of the one of the women, I think it's one of the women, one of the people anyway, says that their doctor says to them they'd rather give them a HIV diagnosis than a diabetes diagnosis. Because, you know, really in terms of how it will affect your life physically and in terms of your your medical health like it's it's better to manage it yeah yeah Yeah. because as you say you equals you and people are living long healthy you know lives where you know as long as you take your medication you're fine and but it is the social stigma still and you know I I've interviewed Veda before about this I interviewed Veda and Robbie on my on my old show um about their podcast and you know Veda talked about those 10 years where they weren't open about it and where it was eating them up inside. And to hear Veda talk about the the freedom and the joy of being able to be open and honest about who they are is really, really striking in 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 contrast to the people who are still stuck and feel like they can't share it. And I know people in that situation mm-hmm. who are so open in every other area of their life, but it's it's so tough that we still are living with this unbelievable stigma. Mm. 
I think it's it's sad because I mean I, I feel like there is just this fear of rejection like the virus is so tied up in relationships in romantic relationships in the search for love mm, <laughs> which we yeah. all care about you know and yeah. I think like one of the moments in the film that really like impacts me is when Robbie and his mom are talking and yeah she oh reminds him of of him saying like who's gonna love me yeah. And I think that that's something that comes up for a lot of people who are newly diagnosed. Like, am I going to find someone? I know. Is my partner going to reject me? And I just think that's so sad. And I mm. think we need to, you know, there's no reason for that to be there, that concern, that fear. That mm. so killed me, that moment. I me remember too. me and Sean were crouched down in the hall because, you know, we just left our camera woman, Eleanor Bowman, in mm. the kitchen with them filming so that it felt like, you know, very intimate. And that bit where he, he she said that he said who's gonna love me now oh. and she says I will it's just so I know like it really gets to you yeah and of course you know your mommy's love is so important but everybody wants well you know a different most kind people of love. want yeah. a different kind of love a romantic love yeah and people do experience rejection and they're they're you know you do hear about on kind of you know apps and things like that people saying very negative things mm. Robbie would have told us stories about that where you know, people would receive awful kind of text messages and responses. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, the fact that the film's out there, it provides an opportunity to get people talking yeah. about HIV and mm -hmm. get the message out there. Because when it's coming from just like a health campaign, yeah. people don't pay as much attention to it and no. you don't get do as you know, much coverage. Do you know what's kind of funny though, a funny thing to say. <laughs> so we just line it up a little bit. We had, I had a conversation in Galway <laughs> With a woman who, I, like, sometimes when you're like planting a question in the audience because you're right. worried that people aren't going to ask any questions. Mm -hmm. And she's like, okay, what will I ask? And I was like, ask me, am I single? Like taking the piss. Because <laughs> I am. <laughs> and I'm in He's Galway. And in there could be someone here. Um, so I'm like, ask me, am I single? And she's like, okay, okay. She's like, like playing along with me. And then afterwards she goes, actually, do you know what I wanted to ask you? I wanted to ask you like, are you single? Because you're so associated with HIV. Oh. And I was like, well, I'd love to use it as an excuse. But every person <laughs> with HIV on our team is in a relationship except for me. <laughs> so the only HIV negative person that's on screen is actually the single one. So therefore, I don't think the stigma, I mean, it's eroding and it's gone away as well at the yeah. same time. And people you are like, open. I can't blame it. And people are opening their eyes. And like, obviously, in our film, you see like so many relationships between yeah. HIV positive and HIV negative people. And do you think, obviously, without erasing the fact that there is obviously still, there are issues and people are getting negative comments on the apps and definitely mm -hmm. there are people who, you know, there's still a stigma there. Do you think that the gay community, the, the gay male community, is further ahead than the rest of the community in terms of acceptance? I'd love to think so. It's hard to say. Yeah. Um, I I think that, like, you know, I got, when I'm dating someone, you know, I, I'll have a conversation with them about HIV. And sometimes, you know, you I have had someone say, oh, I need to consider it. Like, I need to think about it. Mm. And then it's an opportunity for me to say, well, like, wh like why? why? You know, yeah. here's the information. Like, why does it need to be that way? I think 100% in our spaces, we're surrounded with the messaging a lot more. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it's on the doors of the toilets. It's in the main space in Panty. Like, yeah. we are canvassed mm. a lot more, which is great. So... Yeah, you'd love to think um, that it's getting better, but I do think it still itches at some people and there's still a hangover there and there's still work to be done with the gay male community as well. Yeah, yeah definitely. You know, I mean, I was just talking to someone who's over visiting from San Francisco and he lives in the heart of San Francisco, you know, walking distance to the Castro 
And he didn't really know the full details around U equals U. And Mm. he's a gay man, you know. So sometimes we've had people say to us, is this an Irish issue? Is this because, you know, you don't talk about sex enough in Ireland or the whole hangover from Catholicism and stuff like that? But then we have traveled with the film and met people afterwards or had questions during Q&A's where you realize the stigma is still the same. It's, yeah. it's happening in the UK. It's happening in Norway. We had uh, someone come from HIV Norway, which is the equivalent of HIV Ireland. Mm. Um, and he put it out to their whole, you know, network and nobody from their network would come to see a film wow. that was about HIV. So, you know, these issues are human issues. They're not something that's particular to Ireland. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that, you know, I think Robbie said it, like, you know, when you are queer, you've had an experience coming out. So you've had like maybe practice, right? you know, to tell something that you're worried about the other person's reaction. And, and yeah. so you get a bit of a practice run. But maybe for people who aren't part of the community, it's harder. And, mm. you know, in a way, like some of them said to us, you know, when you say it to someone, it's like you're, you're saying, I had sex, I had unprotected sex, yeah. which, you know, it's not really a conversation that everybody wants to have with their mom and dad, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of hard in that way because it is associated with sex and sexuality. Yeah. And, I, I mean, that's what it comes down to, yeah, isn't it, really? It is, I mean, that's, really. that's what the root of it is. You know, if this was yeah. a virus that you got through playing badminton, like it wouldn't be, <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be the same. Yeah. But it's yeah, because we, all, we still have that yeah, little bit of just bit of a hang, up, hang yeah. up about it. But we all talk a bit more now about HPV and getting yeah, HPV do, vaccine yeah. and about getting your smear test and everything. And it's, it's really normalized. And yeah. it would be so great if, it was the same for HIV and yeah. people could just speak more openly about it. Yeah. But at the same time, it's really important as well to acknowledge that not everybody has to kind of go on the radio or into the newspaper no, and tell their yeah. story. And and it's a really hard thing to do. Mm. And, you know, when you're making documentaries about things that are stigmatized, mm. you always find that there's there's very few people who want to put their hand up and say, I'll take part. Mm. And that's when you know it's a topic that you, you need you to need make to, something yeah, about, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, Sean, I know this isn't your job and you're not an expert, but I'm still going to ask you um, if there's someone listening now and they are HIV positive and they have not told anyone. What would you recommend that they do if they if that's something that they want to do? Is there somewhere they can seek support? Is there somewhere they can get advice if someone's listening and saying, yeah, I don't want to live with this alone anymore? What should they do? Yeah, there's a great resource called Empower, which Adam Shanley is running and, you know, they offer advice and counsel. Adam Shanley, living angel. Yeah, he's great. Um, And they offer advice and counsel on people for people who are, you know, negotiating disclosure and negotiating just a recent HIV diagnosis. Mm. Um, there's lots of different support that you can find out there. Um, But I, I, I would encourage people to tell their friend. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like tell your friend, tell your pal, um... And yeah, like equip yourself with the information, because I think once you have the information, you'll probably feel a lot better about Mm. it. And it doesn't need to be so stifling. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much. I could talk to you for hours. Um, That's Sean Dunn and Anna Rogers, co-directors of How to Tell a Secret. And the film is out now in cinemas. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Now, if you've been wondering what the hell is going on with Balenciaga, you are in luck because Cassie Delaney is here to take us through the entertainment stories of the week. Cassie Delaney, founder of Tall Tales Podcasts and presenter of The Creep Dive and Before Brunch and just all around gem. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Just watching my Spotify wrapped, feeling ashamed of my music choices. Oh, really? Tell me. Disclose. Well, I mean, like nothing says queer like my music choices. It's ABBA, <laughs> Kate Bush, Muna and Taylor Swift. Okay, stunning. I a Swifty and here I am. Muna also heavily featured in my Spotify wrapped. Um, mine is, oh, has been weird for years though because of the kids. So like the kids yeah. really influence. Like there's a lot of Encanto in there and Harry Styles. I mean, apparently the top 1% of Harry Styles listeners. Um, Amazing. It's such joy. Yeah. Real pride. I mean, I love the album. Like, don't get me wrong, but my kids went through a very intense Harry phase this year as well. So like, that's definitely a factor. But look, I mean, no shame. I don't believe in guilty pleasures. Pleasure is pleasure. Whatever, whatever floats your boat. I was in the top 0.5% of ABBA fans in the world. (laughs) (laughs) That's really saying something. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a real a real sense of pride, and I have no one to blame but myself. Yeah, you shouldn't. Why should you? They're excellent. They make brilliant music. Um, well, we've got a lot to talk about in terms of the world of entertainment this week, and oh, we dude. will start with young Billie Eilish, who did the interview she does every year on the same day with Vanity Fair for the sixth time recently. Yeah, gorgeous. I think this is such a lovely kind of time capsule of watching Billie Eilish's um career over the Mm. last couple of years like it's gorgeous and it's lovely to see her reflect on the answers and see her growth and stuff but one I suppose one of the big talking points this year has been her relationship so Mm. um her relationship with Jesse Rutherford has been sort of contentious in that he's 11 years older than her so uh, she's 20 he's 31 and they've kind of come under fire for poking fun at their age gap before when they dressed up you know at Halloween she dressed up as a baby and he dressed up as an old man but I think I I thought that was pretty funny to be honest yeah (laughs) like I was like you know it's I think it is a significant age gap but Mm -hmm. she's at the point in her life where we all did it like we all definitely tested the waters and dated much older Mm -hmm. but also she's a 20 year old you know global superstar with 
hundreds of millions of followers yeah. on Instagram. She's not a typical 20 year old and she does probably need to date someone who's in the industry, who's experienced the same things and who is a little bit older and a little bit mature. Um, and she speaks really eloquently, I think, in this interview about, I suppose, what her needs are in a relationship and how she feels about it. And mm. it sounds really healthy. Yeah, fine. Like, yeah, I, I, I think I can understand why people like if, you know, if my 20 year old sister was going out with a 31 year old man, I'd be like, eh, really, is that a great idea? But it really mm. does depend on the individual and their lifestyles and um, their level of maturity, because, of course, Billie Eilish famously had this ex-boyfriend um, that Happier Than Ever is about who features in the documentary that she made with Apple Music. And um, he is just seems like a, just a child, like so immature, such an idiot. So it makes sense to me that she would pivot from that to like someone who's kind of, you know, together. Yeah. But I also really enjoyed that she's like, basically, she said, she says, I managed to get my way to a point in my life where I not only was known by a person that I thought was the hottest fucking fucker alive, but pulled his ass. Are you kidding me? Can we just get a round of applause for me? I pulled his ass. All me. I did that shit. I locked that motherfucker down. She really swears a lot. Um, but like, you know, yeah, like good for yeah, you. Yeah, she knows what she wants. She went out and got it. But like, even in the question they ask her every year of like, what does she look for in a relationship and what does she mm. want? She was able to articulate what her needs were. Yeah, very like more so than anyone I ever knew at 20 was able to do. Do you yeah. know, we were still at 20 dating people because they had cool shoes and things. Whereas, like, I don't even know if I was dating people at 20. I think I was still desperately hoping someone would like me. I was I, I was in relationships for completely wrong reasons. I had no sense mm. of what I actually wanted or what I liked and what I didn't like. She's like way further evolved than I was at 20. So I'm I I'm willing to give it my stamp of approval. Also, she yeah. is surrounded by really good smart people like mm -hmm. her parents and her brother and stuff you know she's not you know from what I've seen in documentaries and from like following her and stuff like she's not kind of off with like a new Hollywood crowd or anything this is someone who yeah. you know she's known for a while I don't know I don't have a problem and she with says it. she says in it she's in control she knows what she's doing and she's yeah. happy so let's leave her at it now having said that if you disagree with us please let us know uh, via the voice note uh, you know I have a phone number now Cass it's very exciting oh, um, and I dangerous. feel like this is the kind of thing that people will be disagreeing with me on and disagreeing with you on and absolutely want to hear your take um, okay next up this I found this highly amusing so Nicole Kidman went to see Hugh Jackman in the Music Man in New York and she she made it all about her <laughs> this is just so brilliant right there is just there's the little clip doing the rounds on social media social media now of what has happened so basically um Hugh Jackman is in the Winter Garden Theatre and they are raising money for Broadway Cares which is uh, an organization to fight um against AIDS and it's it's you know brilliant so they're like raffling off or auctioning off things that are part of the production and in the initial seconds of the video, they're auctioning off Hugh Jackman's hat and they're like 18,000, 19,000, like incredible Crazy amounts money, of money. Yeah. Crazy money as is at these big rich people uh, events. And the next thing you hear this like movie starlet voice from the <laughs> audience going 100,000. And everyone's like, that's Nicole Kidman. And then she struts. <laughs> up to the stage in this very casual but like eloquent I'm so rich I've just dropped a hundred thousand up to the stage gives you a hug and um 
it's just a beautiful moment like yeah. they're obviously friends they've worked together they've done they've done films together yeah. they obviously know each other very well i mean they're australian so of course they're friends and um she's just like i love what you do and here's a hundred now she was obviously going to donate money anyway but yeah. it's just the the performance like the, the yeah. performance of it is just wonderful it's yeah. absolutely incredible i totally like, agree like it's not the donation it's not that like the whole thing it makes sense of course nicole kimmon is going to donate 100 grand like not a big deal to her but like mm-hmm. it's the way she stands up kind of like head held high and like strides up to the stage and reaches up to it. it's just very amusing i um, highly recommend that you check out that clip if you can i'll put it's a link so to it. so dangerous now because <laughs> i think there's gonna be loads of people drunk at like raffles and christmas fairs over the next couple of months who are going to stand up and be like <laughs> One hundred thousand dollars. One hundred thousand. Good for it's you, Nicole Kidman. Um, now, next up, actually, Nicole Kidman is kind of involved in this next story mm. as well because this is the story of Balenciaga. I've had several people in, like, genuinely be like, "What the hell is going on there?" To me, over the last couple of days. So let's get to the bottom of what's actually gone on with Balenciaga. Yeah, so this is a mess, right? So Balenciaga are embroiled in a scandal now over two separate ad campaigns, okay? So I'll very quickly run through the kind of history of what has happened here. So the first, uh, a campaign released on the 16th of November for Balenciaga gift shop. Um, This is the one that featured children alongside bags shaped like teddy bears from Balenciaga's 2023 runway shows. Um, And the children are posed on sets that are decorated what many people are considering to be BDSM, you know, paraphernalia, mm. wine, beer bottles, um, and the fact that the teddy bears are wearing very clearly wearing uh, BDSM, you know, gear things. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Gear. Harnesses very, very stuff, gear. Yeah. Yeah. So like really kind of inappropriate, very confusing as to what the message is going to be here, or what they're trying to do. Right. Mm. Um, and so that was that was already causing backlash. People were already like, what the fuck is going on here with Balenciaga? Why are you doing this? It looked and almost then, like satire, like something that someone would do to make fun of the fashion industry. Like like there would be a sketch where someone's like, we put the babies with the S&M. Like, and yeah. it would be funny because it's so ridiculous. That's what it looked like. And that, yeah, but as you say, that was one thing. That was one thing, right? Then on the 21st of November, they released their um, guard robe campaign, which featured Supreme Court documents from 2008 in a um, a court case known as Williams versus the state, I think. Mm. Um, and that is that was a campaign that ruled the promotion of child pornography that was not covered by the First Amendment rights. So basically, it's, it's quite a complicated um, court case. Someone put forward the idea that sharing and engaging with child pornography was legitimized by the first amendment right now the court case found that it was not and that it should not be protected and mm. it reinforced um it reinforced the protect act i think it's called mm. but again really really strange yeah. and, and another other users actually pointed out that um in the background of that campaign campaign there is a book from the artwork of a man called Michael Borums who's a Belgian painter whose work includes uh, figurative paintings of naked children covered in blood really like what? just really really weird stuff right now the interesting is obviously Balenciaga have come out and said initially of the first campaign our plush bears bags were never to be featured with children wrong choice by Balenciaga combined mm. with our failure in assessing and validating images responsibility lies solely with us 
Then of the second campaign, they've actually entered into a lawsuit against the production company that developed the campaign, North Six, to the tune, I think, of 25 million, mm. um, saying that all items included in this shoot were provided by third parties that confirmed in writing that these were props, were fake, that they should have been fake office documents, and they turned out to be real legal papers, um, most likely coming from the filling, filming of a television drama. Um, so they're actively taking kind of a court case against this creative agency saying that it's not their fault. But it's kind of like I was sitting here. I was like, do you mean to tell me that Balenciaga are outsourcing all of their creative input for their campaigns to the point where they're renting props mm. or relying on the opinions and decisions by other creatives? Because that just doesn't add up. Yeah, it just seems like there's um you know, a real apathy or something that exists at, at a certain level of operation in Balenciaga that they're not fully engaged in the decision making or they're not over it, which I just yeah. don't buy. Like, I just yeah. don't think that's accurate. I felt the same. And I mean, I suppose like if you were outsourcing, let's just say hypothetically, you were outsourcing all of your kind of creative imagery and you were letting someone else do it. I suppose you could argue that you might not notice like these are details that you know if you looked at the photos initially you wouldn't necessarily notice not about the teddy bear handbags obviously mm. but like the documents and the book and stuff um you know you could argue that you'd missed it but like surely if you are a big international brand like Balenciaga you are even if you've outsourced everything you are checking everything with a fine tooth comb to make sure that it's all good to go out in the world. Yeah, even the process of these images making it onto websites and making it into publications. Like there's so many checks they would go through. There's yeah. so many people that would be involved in the sharing of those images. And I think the whole thing, it screams messiness. And it also screams that there's like a, obviously a culture in Balenciaga when it comes to creativity and this kind of stuff that not enough people know the message mm -hmm. because there would have been loads of people looking at those images confused and maybe saying that it wasn't their place to mm. call out these things. And they were just accepting them without questioning mm. which again super super messy and I think one of the really disappointing things is that like it there's a real sense that like Balenciaga and other brands of this size are only accountable when they're successful mm -hmm. so that when you know when they like dress Kim Kardashian as a flavored condom they're considered like <laughs> these geniuses but when something goes wrong they point the finger at everyone else do you know <laughs> it's like you can't have <laughs> You can't have it both ways. <laughs> well, let's talk about Kim Kardashian because obviously um, Kim Kardashian has a long-standing relationship with Balenciaga. She is like an official brand ambassador for them. She modeled in the show in Paris in July. She, as you say, every flavored condom outfit that she's worn, the balaclavas, the kind of head-to-toe lycra, all that shit, is Balenciaga. Mm -hmm. So obviously people really wanted her to comment on this and she did, you know, she came out with a statement and she said, as a mother of four, I've been shaken by the disturbing images. She said she'd spoken to the brand and that the brand assured her that, you know, they were working on it essentially mm -hmm. and they were trying to get to the bottom of it. And um, she said she was, um, you know, reevaluating re her relationship with them. But the thing for me is that, and I'm no Kardashian hater and I don't think it's right mm -hmm. that someone like Kim Kardashian should be held accountable for something like this. However, like the Kardashians just had a, a Dolce & Gabbana jizz fest over the summer and Dolce & Gabbana are on record as saying absolutely horrendous things. Like 
yeah, fine. Like maybe they're not talking about child abuse, but they have been homophobic. They have been, mm-hmm. I think, you know, other kinds of phobic. Um, and they are, you know, really problematic. So like you're kind of like, well, where's the line? You know, where is it okay for you to be associated with a brand? And where is it not okay for you to be associated with a brand? Like you're okay to work with Dolce & Gabbana who've publicly said that they don't think that gay couples should have children. You're okay with them using blackface you're okay with you know various other things like you know one of the comments that Dolce & Gabbana said publicly was I'm not convinced with what I call chemical children a rented uterus semen selected from a catalog when like you know the the Kardashians themselves have used alternative methods for having babies like I don't know it just I I just wonder where the line is Exactly. I think we have to question, like, what are these big brands and businesses trying to say and what is the impact they're having on the world? Like, you know, if I think we've looked at we can look at things like Balenciaga and their fashion shows in the past and their messaging. And it's kind of like I think what um, Demna was has been trying to do has been to question the very meaning of taste and uh, couture and what that means. And, you know, do people with money just buy things that they're told are popular, Mm. Um, which I think has been effective to a point mm-hmm. but this it's this kind of thing it's like what were you trying to say and do you not are you so disjointed from the world that you don't realize the the iconography here is going to give license to QAnon and yeah. other conspiracy theorists that are already so yeah. um so dangerous and, yeah. and an area that's already so fraught it's well like, that's exactly it like I, I was on or the condens podcast this week and we talked about this and that, I said that as well that like you know the problem is there's already this growing sense of like because of QAnon um, kind of you know pedophile rings being everywhere and particularly in the media and in within celebrity circles and stuff and this as you say like absolutely gives credit to those you know outlandish claims anyway we could talk about it all day but we have to talk about Matt Hancock making it to the final of I'm a Celeb oh my god why how and why do people I can't make sense of it it just it like I okay full disclaimer did not watch I'm a celeb this year um but from the start from learning that he was going on it very very confused by the decision of ITV and mm-hmm. you know anyone involved in the production to allow Mac, Matt Hancock to appear on it and get that like or at least attempt to get that redemption arc mm-hmm. um and it just seems so like just utterly foolish I really thought that he would go on and, you know, be voted for every Bush Tucker trial and mm. the public would hate him and use it as an opportunity to kind of get there. Punish him, you know? yeah. Yeah. Um, but then to see him make it all the way to the final. Now, yeah. he didn't get it. Like, there was a huge disparity in the votes. Like, yeah. there was a huge gap. I think Jill was, um, you know, nearly 50% of the vote, 47% or something mm. of the public vote, which is great to see. Out but of three people. How, yeah. Yeah. But how he even made it there to begin with is just baffling to me. I know you said um, before that, like, he he's not even a celebrity. Like, he's yeah. someone who holds a position in a public office. So, of course, he's known. But he should not be up for consideration for no. programs like this I can't make sense of it like when I read it because I, I was watching but then I fell off I just got busy and kind of didn't see the last few days and like I, w- I kind of immediately was like well that can't be real like obviously that mm. must be ITV kind of doctoring the results to make sure that he's in but then I was like no I mean that doesn't even make sense so then I think it must be real and then that's I don't understand that at all I don't understand how people 
because he wasn't even like it would be one thing if he'd gone in and he'd been like utterly charming and like you know lovely and the star of the show and so everyone wanted to vote for him but like he wasn't he was fine he did the he did the trials he did well in the trials but he was boring doing them and he was boring the rest of the time like he brought nothing exciting or interesting I don't know I can't make sense of it thank god he didn't win be very interested to see uh kind of what happens next for his career I I don't know I think people who were against Matt Hancock are still against Matt Hancock and maybe people who didn't really have strong feelings about him are kind of like oh he did his time kind of vibes which obviously he hasn't um yeah and of course there's always going to be people out there who support him as well which is the you know the sad thing but each to their own well really (laughs) okay um finally we just have to acknowledge this wonderful moment that happened this week with Martin Scorsese just absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's the typical if an Irish person does well abroad, we're all behind them. It's it's sport. It's yeah. sport for, for the queers and the women. Um, so this was a fantastic uh, little snippet. Uh, Mar- Martin Scorsese was interviewed during the week and there's a 10 second clip where he mentions that he was watching Dairy Girls and he says those nuns shaking his head. So um, it's just great to see the success, obviously, of Lisa McGee's um, Dairy Girls do so well abroad and to build fans from young to old to Martin Scorsese and deserved is what I would say it's absolutely brilliant it's also just really enjoyable to watch the cast of and and the writers and stuff of um Dairy Girls just dying like collectively exploding and dying over this such such a joy to behold well Cassie Delaney of Tall Tales Podcast thank you so very much for shepherding us so gracefully through those stories and may you have a wonderful weekend and a great week you too now just about time for me to go my friends but I do have a few recommendations before we get going um first I want to recommend Virgin River if you haven't watched it it is a Netflix program it is total rubbish I mean there is nothing intellectual about this program whatsoever and that's why I love it I love to have it on in the background I had watched the first two series pretty like back to back during um lockdowns and then I kind of fell off and I dipped into season three but I, I don't know I just forgot about it well let me tell you I've gotten back into a big style in the last couple of weeks I've only got one episode left of season four and then I'm gonna have to wait for the new season which is gonna be tough I won't lie but it's just like good wholesome viewing if you like things like I don't know Grey's Anatomy or like I don't know, shows where there's like a a, a ludicrous amount of drama happening in a small community, that kind of vibe. Um, It's definitely for you. Highly recommend. I also want to recommend Aldi's Toffee Popcorn. If you are a Toffee Popcorn fan, and I am someone who has to actually um, really hold back when it comes to Toffee Popcorn, because once the bag is open, it's gone. So I try not to buy it on a regular basis, but it is the season for treats, right? Although, I mean... Personally, I believe in treats all year round, but like it's, you know, whatever. You might be buying yourself something extra special in the shops. And uh, the Aldi toffee popcorn is stunning. I also picked up some pate the other day because Christmas season is pate season for Louise. And I am delighted to be back in the swing of acquiring gout. <laughs> it's all good. Um, anyway, I hope you get yourself some nice snacks this week. Don't forget um, 
that there is the phone number if you want to send me a voice note 089-209-6423 that's 089-209-6423 I do have some highlights from this week's contributions coming up um, after the beautiful Pillow Queens finish us out yes it is Pillow Queens by the way who are responsible for the theme song for this podcast which I absolutely love Um, and yeah that's about it thank you so much to all of my wonderful contributors I love you so much thank you so much to Acast I will talk to you next week have a great one if you can't have a great one put one foot in front of the other and we will be back together soon Hi Louise, um, I'm a very busy mum of uh, three kids um, coming to you from County Kerry. I'm sitting in bed, chilling out, um, reading the Irish Country magazine. I stopped on the way home from work on Friday, especially to get it. You look absolutely amazing. Love the style. I especially love the brown dress on the inside. And actually, it's a lovely magazine, one that I never buy. I just want to say I absolutely love the podcast. Um, I don't tend to turn it, tune into the news because I just find it so depressing. And with young ears around the place, I find um, that I'm scared of what they'll hear and expose them to all the negativity. So I absolutely love your show um, and the current news and all the rest with um, Aoife. And I also really love the way how you're so honest on the pod. And if you've had a bad week, you say so. And you're not putting on the mask that everything is great, whatever. I think you're fantastic. Keep up the great work. I'm so excited. I have your number now on my WhatsApp. So best of luck with the show. Um, Thank you for everything that you do for all us Irish women. Thank you. Bye. Hey, Louise. Um, I'm a long-time listener from your 2FM days. And I'm completely addicted to catch up. Um. I honestly look forward to every Friday morning uh, and I'm recommended it to all my family and friends. Um, but just listen to the most recent episode uh, discussing who you'd send to the Eurovision to in Ireland. First band that came to mind was the Bill Queens. I think they'd be incredibly good. Um, so yeah, this is my two cents. Thank you. Hi Louise, just wanted to send your voice message to say that I'm a fan of the pod and that I'm a new fan I suppose because I've only been following you since your blind boy interview I missed all that 2FM goodness that you occasionally reference uh Aoife Moore is fantastic um I love all the interviews um but I do skip out as soon as the celebrity gossip starts because I just have no interest in that but you obviously enjoy it so that's fine leave it in as long as you keep it towards the end it's just easier for me to skip uh you do tempt me in sometimes like when you dropped the little breadcrumb at the start of an episode that someone got a full length tattoo of Marty Whelan's face. I had no choice but to listen to that. So if you keep dropping little nuggets like that, you'll eventually rope me in. But um, just to illustrate how different our interests are, I recently saw a film called The Eternals by Marvel, and it wasn't great. But when I was watching the credits, I saw that there was a Skarsgård credited. And from watching the film, I didn't recognize a Skarsgård, you know, fairly famous actor family but uh, you think you sort of recognize the family resemblance and then the post-credit scene started and a guy appeared with a goblin planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sidekick. And I was like, oh, he looks kind of scarsgardy. I bet that's the guy. Um, and I was talking to some people after the film, and I said, oh, did you, did you see who came in at the end credit sequence? And someone looked at me confused and said, uh, do you mean Harry Styles? And I went, oh, was that, is that who that was? And they were like, yeah. So uh, I looked it up later and it turns out it was Harry Styles. Um, but I just don't know anything about him or what he looks like. So I assumed he was a Skarsgård, um, who actually, it turns out, was the voice actor for the Little Goblin. That's, that's where the Skarsgård was. So um, very different people all coming together to listen to your podcasts and just showing that everybody's interests can move in many more than just one direction.